This, is, this, this thought occurred to me that <clears throat> what's curious about Matthew 18 is you have Jesus beginning to speak to his disciples about the nature and the reality of what the kingdom of God looks like. And I, I want to encourage us, sometimes we have had a mindset, and, and again, I've, I've used these words, but the, that the idea of, of, of God's kingdom is something that's distanced from us. And Jesus never seems to communicate that. He's always talking about a reality of, of, of something that is tangible that's encountered and lived in and, and inhabited. And so here we are, you know, centuries later now, that we've translated some of these ideas of distance and then the idea of the, the fact that we have a regular gathering that we come together in. And it's, it's sometimes hard for us to get this context, how radically different the ideas of Jesus were to those that were hearing them. So last week we looked at the idea that when Jesus begins to talk about the kingdom, one of the things that comes up after he's uh, uh, talked about, you know, who do you say that I am as he's standing in front of um, what was called the gates of hell, he says, I'm going to build a church. My church, the gates of hell will not prevail against this. And, and blessed are you, Simon, you know, Spirit of God's revealed this to you. You're, the, you know, you're Messiah. Wow. And so for them, again, Messiah meant um, it, was, it was understood in these tangible terms of a force or a government, an earthly government, that was going to come and shift things for them. And that they, they, the only imagination they had in the context of that government was were the things that were causing them such oppression. And one of them was experienced in the realm of power that was oppressive over them. But the other one that is, is equally important, and we're going to look at this today, is the realm of economics and, and meaning that it was debt that bound people that held them in oppression over by their masters. And so in their context, they're looking for a, a military force that comes by sacred violence and freedom from oppression, from financial oppression, okay? So Jesus comes in Matthew 18, first half of it we looked at last week. Who's going to be the greatest? Where is this sacred violence going to come from, Jesus? That's kind of how we sort of looked at it, and, and, and we had some solid reasoning to be able to look at it from that context. But now, where we're going to look at this week in Matthew 18 is where Jesus begins to talk about debt. Um, but before we go there, I, I found it really interesting that the, oh, get the right spot here. Uh, the, the prayer of the week last week from the Common Book of Prayer, listen to this. Grant us, O Lord, we pray thee, to trust in you with all of our heart, seeing that you always resist the proud who confide in their own strength, but you do not forsake those who make their boast in your mercy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Matthew 18. Beginning of verse 21, this is a text I, I, I told my wife again, again this morning, I think I'm repeating myself, 
And she said, again, that's your job. Repeat yourself. So here we go. <clears throat> here's, here's the thing. And, and so you, you have this context, and, and this is the way these terms were for a Jewish mindset. I'm looking for, for something of strength, and I'm looking to find freedom. And here's where this gets muddied up in our own heads, in our own lives, is uh, if we see this as distance from where we are, we need to translate it in, into our everyday living because we, we do have mindsets around us that say we're looking for, we, we translate the idea of the kingdom of God in, in terms of power over others. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's power that serves. It's demonstrated in love. And then the next context, so, you know, interestingly, Peter Remember the last time he spoke up, Jesus, you know, first time he spoke up is like, star student, blessed are you. Then he's like, I'm super confident. But, you know, he rebukes Jesus. <laughs> Jesus said, uh, you're thinking like a man. And um, get behind me, Satan. So it's like he's quiet for a second. But what's the very next thing that he begins to speak about is one of the questions that haunts us, which is how much? And what Peter is reflecting on is something that is in the heart of all of humanity, and that is that we tend to want to quantify what's happening around us. Jesus, Peter speaks up, first time he's spoken since Jesus said, get behind me. How often shall I Forgive then my brother who sins against me. Up to seven times? Now, that, again, that, he isn't just giving a, 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 a trick question. That's, that's a Jewish rabbinic teaching. It's like seven. That's a lot. Okay, the point being you forgive him a lot. So, so Peter is referring to something he's probably heard in, in rabbinic teaching. And Jesus said to him, um, I do not say to you up to seven times, but... 70 times 7. Oh, my goodness. Jesus, you're not interested in quantity? For this reason, the kingdom of God may be compared to a king. Okay, so Jesus is now giving them the image of what they wanted out of their life. I want that ruler who's holding force over me and debt and has the right to pull those debts from me. I, I'd like for that to be gone. Jesus says, oh, here, here's the kingdom. Compared to a king who wished to settle the accounts with his slaves, when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents, like a million bucks, was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, not a whole lot compared to what he just forgiven. 
And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay me back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling, and he went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what he was owed. And so then his fellow slaves saw what had happened. They reported, they, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord what had happened. Then summoning him to his Lord, he said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you have not had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that he was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. Peter, the next time he's speaking up, he's got his measuring stick out. How, how much? And the title I've given the message this morning is, When Is It Enough? One of the, one of the best told, or most repeated stories of martyrdom, of Christian martyrdom of the last 50 years, 60 years, took place in the Amazon jungle of Ecuador. Um, and the backdrop of it is this, that uh, the Ecuadorian native, tribal peoples, the native peoples that lived there, were, they, they were known as the Waidauni people, but among the Waidauni, there was a, a group among them known as the Auka, and they were a particularly violent group of tribal peoples. And what was happening in the mid-1950s in Ecuador was the Shell Oil Corporation was attempting to work with the Ecuadorian government to help bring resource into that part of the world. And every time that the Shell Oil Company sent in workers, they were being killed by the native tribes. So, uh, the Shell Oil Company reaches out to the Ecuadorian government, and here's the little dirty little secret that they weren't saying quite out loud was simply this, we need to deal with this problem. And so one of their solutions was to drive them out by whatever means they needed to. Coupled with this, right about this same time, there were a group of missionaries, Wycliffe missionaries, five families that had gone to Ecuador to reach the unreached. And um, they had begun to make peaceful contact with some of the tribal peoples, but not of this particular branch of the Wadawni people. And they had begun to reach out to them. And again, they're hearing that this is about to happen, and they wanted to reach out to make peaceful contact with them, hopefully to reach them for the gospel, but also that they wouldn't be just exterminated. So uh, there were five missionary families, uh, Jim and Elizabeth Elliott, Nate and Marge Saint, Ed McCauley and his wife, Roger Udarian, and Pete Fleming. Now, the, the five men had worked together to begin to establish contact. And uh, do, do we have any of those slides available? If you want to go ahead and show those. These are some of the, the, the families that are there. And the, the, the one, the black and white shot there is the one of, of Nate Saint. And he was the pilot. Now, they had gone and 
flown over and found where some of these tribal villages were. They had begun to leave gifts with little, they, they would drop them into the area, and after a period of time, they felt like they'd begun to make some contact, so they thought it, it was time to make specific contact. Go ahead and give me the next uh, slide there. This is actually Nate Saint with his wife Marge and his two children, Kathy and Steve. So when they went on January the 8th, 1956, these five men landed a small airplane on a little island in the river, believing that they, they were going to make physical contact. Each of them actually had a handgun on them to uh, protect themselves against wild animals, but they had decided ahead of time that if, if they were attacked, they would not retaliate. All five men were killed. And this was a, it caught international attention. Um, there's a picture there, right there, that, that on the, you can see these five widowed ladies now learning, hearing the news of their husband's uh, murder. And it was, uh, it was an amazing story. What became even more amazing was this, that Two years after their martyrdom, all five of these women began to, had, began to pray for the Wadani people. Uh, Steve Saint tells the story that as a child, he remembers that his mother began to pray daily for those that murdered his dad. But this isn't where the story ends because God began to tell a story. And part of this story is that two years after they were murdered, Elizabeth Elliot and then Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, moved in, literally began to live with the Wadowney people and began to share with them not only about the gospel, they began to actually learn their language so that they could translate the Bible into their language. Nine years, in June of 1965, Steve said that as he grew up, he, he decided that something must be incredibly special about these people, that my father was willing to die, my aunt, and, and, uh, my aunt Rachel and then my aunt Betty, that he said it wasn't his physical aunt, but that's what she was to him, had gone to live with them, and my mother prayed for them daily so that when they went to go visit them and, and they began to hear stories from this people, they began to tell them about the God who had changed their lives. So it was nine years in June of 1965 that you can see right here that it was Nate Saint's daughter, Kathy, who was baptized by two of the three men that had killed her father. A little bit later, Steve Saint, standing in that picture, was baptized, and they went almost to the exact same spot. Steve later said that one of the men that began to befriend him was a man by the name of Menkaya. Menkaya was one of the three men that had killed these five missionaries. Menkaya said, You are now my family because we are joined in family 
by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it was actually Micaiah that began to teach Steve the ways of Jesus. As you fast forward a little bit later in his life, Steve Saint and Micaiah began to travel in the United States and tell this story. And it was a reporter from the USA Today back, I believe, in, it was like in the late 80s. Uh, he called up Steve Saint and he said, I'd like to interview you, but before, before I do, I, I just have to ask this question. I suppose I could figure out how somebody could finally forgive the man who killed your father, but you say that you love him. You say he's like a father to you. How can that be? And Steve said, it's, it's because God has told a story of his mercy. And, and a little bit later, Steve said, I wish I would have said this one thing. He said, yes, he's the same man, but not really. He's not the same man. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. He's become a different man. Menkaya has since died and gone to be with Jesus. Steve is now uh, a lot older. There's a lot more to his story that I don't want to get into. But the, the point is this. To our natural way of thinking, the reporter is asking a question that all of us ask. Wait, that Peter was asking. How does this add up? Because like it or not, we add things up. And it's the power of God's mercy, of his forgiveness, that allows a whole other story to be told. The good news of God's love and forgiveness that's deep and full enough to redeem and restore the injured and the injurer. That's amazing. The kingdom of God is based on the limitless supply of God's love and of his mercy. This is the equation. God's mercy. When we are not enough or when we've had enough, his mercy is more than enough. See, in this text, Jesus is responding to Peter's question. Wait. It's not just Peter's question. It's one we all face. How often? How much? Peter's just doing what we all do. I want to I get the number. I want to quantify this. Where's the limit? We talk a lot about, in, in, in culture today, the words that, that, that's used a lot today is trauma. And it's true. The reality is all of us have had things that have traumatized our heart and our life. And, and we can begin to quantify it. And, and here's what's interesting. Whether you like it or not, your body even keeps score of it. Just watch what happens to your body when you wind up back in the presence of someone who has injured you in your heart or your life. And you're trying your best to be as kind and benevolent toward them 
but yet you're feeling something in you. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Am I the only guy who's ever had that, right? Okay. See, counting and quantity is, it just comes naturally. So Peter, we're not going to earmark him and saying, you know, hey, dude, what's your problem? He's like, hey, this is, we're all there. The places that we have been hurt, the places that we hurt others. And here's what's curious. And Jesus uses this term, and he's talking about forgiveness, and he, he translates it by using two words interchangeably. One of debt, referring to an economic system, and the other one of sin both holding this bondage. So it had to do with this justice system. And so we have these things that happen to us in our lives, and, and it's hard not to keep score. Or worse, when we've had things that we've done to others and we find ourselves unable to help them receive the forgiveness that we want to give. But here's what happens for us many times. We want to try to figure out how to balance that scale out. So Jesus, at the end of the days, of his days, he's saying, guys, I want to get you to understand this kingdom. It's, it's, it's powered. The currency of this kingdom is in God's love and his mercy, in love and forgiveness. We're not overthrowing Rome. I am the Messiah. I am building my church. But I'm going to die, and I'll be raised up. And, and by the way, you're going to find true life when you embrace the way of the cross. So what Jesus is inviting them to do is begin to see the world around them differently, meaning that the kingdom isn't going to be about these systems of power and quantity and counting, but a life, not, a, not, not where we're exerting our power over something, but life with God. So he seems to be inviting them to how that they have been thinking or relating to other people around them based on this accounting system. So as He's talking to Pete, you know, his friends, and he says, oh, by the way, who's greatest? Well, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the liminal, the, the, the ones that you don't even think matter, the little children that aren't grown up that you think we don't even count them in our system. It's the ones that you thought were completely gone and forgotten. And so Peter's like, okay, wait a minute. What about, oh, my goodness. When, then, then what about this issue of forgiveness stuff? When is it going to be enough? So... I want to say that Jesus isn't just clarifying the message of enough, but pointing to what it means to live kingdom life that is cross-shaped to the point that he's on the cross and embracing it and forgiving the ones that are actually killing him. Part of what was so powerful when I saw that photo of those men baptizing Kathy Saint and Steve Saint, the ones that took the life of their father, is that's, that's mercy in living color. Beloved, mercy and forgiveness is the currency of the kingdom, and it's based in the supply of heaven. 
This is what I want us to hear. It's not, not in the lack of man, but it's, it's altogether different. And it creates, what it does is it creates space for the kingdom of God. And where, where the adversary comes to bring harm, trauma, and that happens to all of us. This is, this is the good news of the gospel is like, oh Lord, yeah, as I surrender to mercy, you actually create space for something that wasn't there before. Yes. That's why Jesus said, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like this master who goes to settle his accounts. And he's got an individual who's got a debt is as large as his life. He's going to be sold, literally. And he begs for patience and time. And then the master, you know, forgives him. But this, this one who's forgiven refuses to give his fellow servant what he's just received. So in that story, Jesus is, in, is I believe, here's what I, 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 you know, what do we want to translate into this? Jesus, it's not about quantity. It's about the kind of life, the quality of life. What is your life going to be bearing? Are you going to live still bound up in a debt system where you count stuff? Or are you going to surrender to mercy? The story of the master. Uh, the story of the master reveals that there was a value system in his heart that was greater than the quantity system that he had literally held over this slave, that he had hold over him. Mercy over money. Compassion over correction. And the master gives the slave not what he asked for. Give me patience. Give me time. He just forgives the debt completely. He lives, this is what is important. The master in Jesus' story lives from the place that his heart is settled in. That is, beloved, I, something we need to hear, translate that into our own heart. Living from the place that our heart is settled in. The limitless supply of the mercy of God. And again, that's clearly the picture of the Heavenly Father. It's clearly the picture of what Jesus is saying. This is what I'm representing upon the earth. As I take the violence and the sin upon, of man upon myself, I'm representing the limitless supply of the Father's heart. The story of the servant is a guy who's still bound up in a debt system. He's still in this system. He's keeping accounts. Whoo! I was forgiven. But he doesn't see it as a means of, of being able to live in that supply of mercy. He actually sees he's still counting and quantifying his life. He still sees his life in measures of quantity because he goes to his fellow servant and demands to be paid back. He sees it as a chance to get ahead. His fellow servant asks him for the very same thing. Did you notice this? The very same thing that he asked for. Time and patience. And the newly freed servant, unable to do it because he's not living yet from what he was freely given. His heart hasn't been captured by mercy. His heart is still captured by Counting, demand, debt. Remarkable. Here's the remarkable, tragic part of that. You can be forgiven and still not surrender to the leadership of mercy in your life. That's true. 
I have asked for folks' forgiveness that I have genuinely harmed. Didn't mean to, but I did. And watch them unable to surrender to that. That's rough. That other servant who's just been forgiven is still trying to trust in what he can do for himself, not trusting in what has been done for him. If you want to see a picture of what I would call disconnected thinking or, or uh, orphan kind of thinking is I still have to take care of me. I don't know if I can trust mercy. So he lives out of debt and demand rather than surrendering fully to mercy. Oh my goodness, could it be enough for me? Like if I forgive, will I still be okay? Jesus, how much? Peter, my kingdom is based in the limitless supply of the Father's love and mercy. When we are not enough or we've had enough, his mercy is enough. And Jesus' invitation, live from that supply, not the demand of debt systems, of justifying ourselves against other people. In this parable, you know, Jesus hears how this, the, the master hears how this servant has been, who's been forgiven, and another servant here sees it and goes and talks to the master, and, and the, uh, the master confronts him and says, you missed the point. Now, some people have read verse 35 as its awful swinging axe over your life. Look out. God's going to get you. Can I, just, can I just speak some good news over you, first of all? God's mercy is limitless. It's good. What Jesus is proclaiming is not don't worry about what's happening out there in the distant when, you can, when you're brought before the judgment seat of God. How about if we take a look at something that he was making very, very clear? That if you live from anything less than the supply of God's mercy, here's what's true now. It's torture. It really is. For the injured and for the injurer. Don't, don't hear it as a threat. See it as a revelation of what's actually true. This is what reality is. You're, you're, you're stuck in the idea of enough. The limitless supply of God's mercy is enough. Don't sit there sweating whether or not you've done enough. He's done enough. Surrender to that. But if you're not going to understand something, that's a torturous place to live because you're living by your standard, which will never be enough. In his mercy is an endless supply of life, freedom. So wait, okay, Jewish mindset. Messiah comes, it's going to be a whole new kingdom. And we're going to have life and we're going to have freedom and it's going to be great. It's going to come by this government and all the debts are going to be wiped out. And Jesus said, yes, it's coming. And here's what it looks like. It looks like self-giving love and forgiveness and debts being set free. We're not keeping score. We're not living in this bondage system. We're surrendering to mercy. How many times, Jesus? 
Now, Ben, it's not a quantifiable event. It's a way of being. It's a way of living. It's, it's, Father's not counting. It's who he is. This is who he is. It's, it's a way of seeing others. You mean, you mean the rapist? The drunk driver? The belligerent racist? The greed mongers? The terrorist? Those are easy because we can keep thinking of them out there, but I mean, we could fill in a list, right? The guy who still doesn't want to look me in the eye? So I want to I want to take just just a couple of moments, and this is where I think I'm I'm probably repeating myself because it it bears repetition. What is actually forgiveness look like? What what is it? Well, there's some things that it's not, and I I would uh, some of this I give um, thanks to Brad Jerzak. He's had, had written some good stuff on this, but here's what it is not: forgiveness, mercy is not automatic restoration. So in other words, forgiveness isn't saying it's okay. You know how, you know how folks will come and, 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 and I'll have this happen, I'll, I'll see this uh, being said between individuals and you know, they're saying, I, man, I apologize. Well, it's okay. And what I've begun to say to individuals is especially if I'm the one that's caused the harm, it's like, no, that's, it really isn't okay. I, I want you to hear me that I'm genuinely sorry, okay? Because to say it's okay, watch this, is that we tend, what, what happens is we minimize the hurt, okay? Forgiveness, we're not minimizing it, and especially when it comes to this issue of those who've experienced abuse in their life, you know, and, and like, that's not okay. Now, I want to I want to share something that's become a little bit interesting for me that the Lord's beginning to talk to me about, which has been this: is um, that's, there, there have been times when I've come to and and I've tried to work out. And I've kind of implied this in a couple of uh, phrases earlier in the message, but where I'm trying to work with somebody that I think, okay, maybe I've obviously hurt them or harmed them, and and then uh, I begin to start taking responsibility for things that aren't mine. Now, that's actually easy for me to do because of uh, some of my own, you know, my own hurts in my past and my, my upbringing, that kind of thing. But it's also some really bad news. It's not good because what that means is that I'm kind of living out of this place where I'm saying, you know what, if I can take responsibility for it, then I can be in control of this, <laughs> you know? I can control the outcome. And that's what I had to confront. I was confronting it like about a month ago. I was sitting with a friend of mine. I said, why do I do this? He said, yeah, well, it's because it's, it's about control. You think you can control the outcome. I said, oh, so now I'm still an idolater. Okay, Lord, forgive me. Um, forgiveness is not about controlling the outcome. So I don't come to somebody and say, forgive me. Because I'm really hoping that they'll come clean with me. Does that make sense? That's just control. 
So forgiveness doesn't mean automatically for restoration. It doesn't mean automatically as well reconciliation. It doesn't mean that we're okay and minimize the importance of trust and love in a relationship. When a heart's been violated, it may take a minute to restore trust. That is still godly and okay. All right? And it's not rehabilitation, meaning that you're okay and minimize, you know, the importance of living a life that's connected and building trust and love with those around them. Okay? So what does it look like then? Lord, how often? As often as the Father. Okay, so what does this look like, Father? Well, uh, it, it looks like that I begin to say, okay, no, scorecards, oh yeah, well, I, I have to let go of those. So, so essentially, one of the phrases I've often used is that forgiveness is, is releasing the debt. Um, it's, it's me identifying that I've been counting. So how do I do that? Well, John identifies this as well as Jesus. Jesus identifies it in Matthew 18 in the parable. But John quantifies it by saying we, we forgive because he forgave us. So, so what I'm leaning into is this. This is really, really important. I'm forgiving because I have been forgiven. So I don't have to feel really good about that person. Are you all hearing what I'm trying to say right now? Um, I don't have to have it all settled. My feelings, and they're important, are not the beginning place of forgiveness. The beginning place of forgiveness is in the heart of God. In his mercy, I'm sharing what I have been freely given. So my choice is, will I surrender in faith that his mercy is greater than my fear of what will happen if I let go of the debt. My longing for justice. I pray these words almost every day. Psalm 103. He's not treated us as our sins and iniquities deserve. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sin and our transgression from us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As a father has compassion on his children, the Lord has had compassion on us, for he knows how he's made us. We're but dust. From everlasting to everlasting is the Lord's loving kindness to those who fear him. I pray those words because I need to. Okay? I pray it because I'm saying again, Lord, oh yes, this is the system I want to surrender to. Your mercy is the greater, and it's the one that I want to live and operate from. I want to, I want to steward then the, the people around me. Sometimes when I have a right to, when I think I have a right to steward them differently, you know, you know, you kids, you've judged me wrong. Uh, Psalm 35, verses 14 and 15, great verses there. But the psalmist talked about how he, how he held 
those who had hurt him in his heart. He said, when, when they hurt me, they, they laughed in folly. But when, when, when I went before you, I prayed for them as if they were my mother. So I, I carried them in my heart and said, Lord, you love them. How do I? How Because here, here's something that's really important. And I often find myself trying to invite others to hear this. Okay, How are you holding that person in your heart? Have you killed them? Now, we live in a culture that celebrates this kind of thing. It's in media every day in front of us. Vengeance, man. Um, and it's not just the vengeance culture. It's the I don't want to have anything to do with them culture. Cut them off. You're dead to me. How, how, how can I? Lord, I, I, want to, I want to live in mercy. Okay. How are you holding that person in your heart matters. So uh, something, uh, uh, two, two things. Releasing the debt. Uh, this is, again, I'm repeating is hardly ever a finished event. Seldom is. So here's, here's what I'm saying. Um, Lord, I'm going to choose to relate that person to the basis of mercy and not debt. Great. I'm bringing them to the cross. I'm bringing this hurt to the cross. I'm bringing that to the cross. And, and, and I'm going to leave the responsibility to you. And later in the day, I'm, ugh, I get to come back. Lord, I want to I surrender again to mercy. Seldom a finished event. Anybody who tells you something like, you know, I've forgiven them, but boy, I don't like them, you know. Okay, well, I, I, I've got place. I understand what you're saying. But it's hardly ever a finished event because our hearts need to continue to come back and surrender to mercy. By the way, that includes not just them, but ourselves, right? Lord, oh, yeah, you, you have forgiven me. You love me. You're not living from a system of debt, even though I'm reminding myself of what I've done. Or the adversaries whispering in my head, there is no condemnation. Now, that's not the adversary. That's the Holy Spirit talking to you. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, the reason that the early church embraced the Jesus prayer, uh, which comes from, uh, you know, Jesus' encounter with a man by the by, by the city of Jericho, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The reason they embrace that as a regular practice is because this is this regular routine of saying, Lord, ah, have mercy. It's mercy. Have mercy on me, and I want to live for mercy. In counseling, uh, we talk about walking with people through degrees of, of trauma. So my point is that Today, as I've released them, tomorrow I might have to come back to it again and again and again. So, Now, the last thing I want us to see, and this is part of why I told that initial story about Nate Saint and his children. And now, by the way, his grandson is ministering in Ecuador. And they're teaching. Um, they, they're, they're coming into tribal peoples all over the world and ministering. It's just wonderful ministry. But... Mercy creates a space. That's the miracle that we're believing. God, not just that you forgive debt, 
but that you forgive sin, but that you release debt and you bring people into a freedom. That's called creating space. His mercy creates space for new life. See, so forgiveness at its best is me getting out of the way and allowing his mercy to, to allow something to be revealed that I couldn't create. Romans 12, 12 is a great verse. It says, I rejoice in expectation, meaning that my tally sheet is not in my economic system, but in God's mercy and his redemption. So, beloved, this is the good news we proclaim today, is that these systems, power, debt, Lord, you've invited us to live from the deep, full reservoir of your mercy that's enough for the injured and the injurer. When we are not enough, when we've had, quote, enough, his mercy is enough. Amen? Let's, I, I want to close us this morning and, and bring us to this prayer. Would you stand with me as we pray this prayer together? O God of Joseph and all his brothers, your forgiveness transcends whatever wrong exists between us. Grant us the courage to forgive others and to practice reconciliation by the kindness of our speaking, the sharing of our resources, and the honoring of your desire for good. Amen and amen.